In this episode of the Smart Community Podcast, I have a brilliant conversation with Rachel Desan, founder and lead advisor at CodeSan. Rachel tells us about her background across a range of digital transformation and innovation disciplines and her passion for using technology to make healthcare better. Rachel and I talk about what digital transformation really means, and it's not just about making your paper forms into online ones, and why it's so important that we develop smart concepts to really rethink how we deliver services to the community. Rachel shares with us some of the projects she's currently working on and why she moved out of Sydney to find more livability regionally. We have a great conversation about the impacts of commuting on health and well-being and why we should be focusing more on this and not just congestion. We discuss how technology can help us fail in safer, faster ways and why we need governments to be more risk tolerant to allow for this iterative approach. Rachel and I talk about how we can better integrate by having a whole-of-government approach to data sharing to drive better, more efficient use of public investment and the use of life flow analysis to have a more citizen-centric approach. We finish our chat discussing the emerging trend of being interface agnostic when it comes to content, strategy, and governance to facilitate accessibility, plus the well-being impacts on our always-connected world, not just on our kids, but on the grown-ups too. This episode bits into Movember as we move from old ways of doing things in healthcare to new ones. As always, we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns and smart cities. It's where we live, work and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The smart community podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, Rachel. How are you today? I am doing really well, Zoe. Well, let's jump straight in and can you tell us about your background and what you're passionate about? Well, sure. So I guess I have a bit of an unorthodox background, uh, you might say, in that I left school early at 16 and tried university, but I think in hindsight my IQ was quite high, but my EQ probably wasn't. So taught myself how to code, was really excited about digital and um, primarily worked for big media and comms companies. And they were really open about sort of embracing the idea of this connected world with mobile and internet and using that as an opportunity to create growth and better customer experience. But when I myself got quite sick about 15 years ago, navigating the health system, I realized there was a huge opportunity to understand how we could take this sort of connected technology that's out there and really transform how we deliver health and care. So for me, that's what I'm passionate about is saying we have this enormous opportunity with the you know industry for the changing shape of connected smart communities and, and cities and society. How can we use that to make healthcare better? Mm, awesome. So what sparked your interest in this kind of smart city, smart community space? Well, I guess when you think about it, we have a sick care system. It's not about healthcare. It's about, oh, something's wrong. I'm going to go to someone, have some tests, find out what it is, and then try and fix it with a drug or an operation or whatever. And I think smart technologies create an incredible opportunity to transform our entire approach to healthcare into more of a predict and prevent. So that's why I think the link with smart cities and communities is so very important to realize that dream because from the data and insights we can gather from a smart city to the co-design activities we can initiate to make a city more walkable, more happier to live in, 
more efficient, more sustainable. That's really where my interest and, and, and passion to try and link those two areas together is. Mm. So what is a smart city or a smart community to you? Uh, I guess when I think of smart, it makes me think well-designed and clever, uh, leveraging connected technology to seamlessly improve the lives of the people within it. And, and not just lives of people, but I think organisations too. It's okay to make money. It's okay to have a viable and strong company, but let's try and do it where it looks after the people that it serves and within it, but also the environment that it's into. So it needs to be inclusive and importantly sustainable, tread lightly on environment and ideally even maybe undo some of the damage of the design and the use of cities from before we had the opportunity to make them smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's really key as well that we have designed these cities in a certain way which may have suited the past or we thought that was the best way to do it, but actually we have an opportunity to undo some of those things now that aren't serving us anymore and you know to be able to move into the future that we actually want. Yeah, and I think, I don't know if you've, you've seen, the, there's a Netflix documentary I just started watching about Inside Bill's Brain. And I had no idea about some of the work he's doing with toilets and sanitation and things. And I guess it's not really that much of a sexy topic um, about sewage pipes. But, it, it, you know, just even the amount of people that are wandering around the world today, the way we live our lives is so different that we can be smart about it and use this as a way to make it better and and undo that damage that we're now really facing, particularly with climate change. Mm-hmm. And I guess that really leads into this next question as well. So why do you think that the smart city concept is so important? Well, you know, as I've just said, the world has, has changed. Some things definitely for the better, uh, and it can be quite hard. In fact, my husband sometimes makes me not watch the news because I get a bit depressed watching things. We, we forget to realise that there's some wonderful things happening in that, that have happened in the world, but we are facing some monumental challenges over population, urbanisation, climate change. So really rethinking how we design our cities, our communities, the way we interact with each other in a smarter way to support a different, better way of life that's fairer, equitable, all those kinds of good words that we want. I don't just think it's important. I think it's actually mandatory. It's, it's fundamental to a good future for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there's an imperative now to do things in a way that's different to the past because we can't keep doing the way we've always done them. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's why, you know, I, I think digital transformation sounds a little bit wanky, but, um, you know, and some people think, oh, I, I turned a paper form into an online form. Aren't I clever? And you think that's not digital transformation, sunshine. That's just, you know, pressing a button on a PDF creator, but there's, <laughs> there is a chance to really rethink how you deliver services and we have to because we're running out of money in healthcare if we keep going the way we are and, and in many different areas, we, we just can't keep doing it this way. Mm-hmm. So how do you think Australia is currently embracing the smart community concept? I don't want to sound too negative and I will absolutely put my hand up and say, I'm still new to the smart city, smart community kind of area. But as a citizen and someone who is lucky enough to travel the world a fair bit, I'm quite disappointed in how I perceive Australia to be doing in the space. When I'm overseas, particularly in the Nordics, um, and even actually recently in Croatia and Italy, I felt there was sort of a stronger commitment to how to design and support smarter cities. Um, I might be wrong about that, and maybe I'm just not seeing it, but 
Champara in Finland, who I know you're you're traveling around and seeing some great places. I don't know if you've been there, but I was very impressed with their approach, how they're thinking about their smart city, their, their uh, measures of success of the initiative on the impact that it has on citizens' health, happiness, economic opportunities. And I really loved that. It was really sort of saying a smart city has to deliver these kind of improvements for the people in it. Stockholm's done some great things. And I mean, I, I well, not so much Sydney, just south of Sydney is where we live. Service New South Wales looks to be doing good things. But the reality is, you know, living in Sydney, in fact, my husband and I moved a year ago because we just found it wasn't livable uh, anymore. And we now live down the coast, which is great. Community's fantastic. Great initiatives like the Make Do and Library of Things. But it's fair to say we're struggling to cope with the commute. The trains are overcrowded. There's never enough seats. And when there are, there's no way you could work on them. And, you know, you don't even have mobile coverage for a large portion of the trip, which, again, puts pressure. I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky. My husband and I can do a lot of work from home. But for an enormous amount of people, that's just not possible. So we're not making use of those regional corridors. We're not making smart decisions about the core infrastructure to support a better way of life for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the commute is something um, we need to hone in on a bit more rather than thinking about congestion, actually flip it and think about the people commuting um, and what that does to their health and well-being. You know, whether it's a long commute, a short commute, actually doing some, I mean, there has been some studies in, into it in the past, but I think we need more focus on that because, you know, we talk about congestion busting and this type of thing, but actually uh, then you're focusing on congestion and that's a symptom, uh, not a cause of, you know, the problem that we have. So I think that, yeah, actually focusing in on the commuting and like you said, you know, you're lucky enough to be able to work from home. I have the same um, luxury, but we need to actually prioritise the people that don't have that luxury so then they can be travelling in a comfortable, convenient way to the, you know, if they have to be at a shop or they're a nurse or whatever, so they don't have to rely on a transport network that's so congested from both in a train or in a car and then is easily crippled as well. Um, Like the network, if it, um, you know, a crash happens, then the whole network breaks down. And so I think, um, yeah, there's lots to be done in that space in yeah, mobility. It's about, as you said, and I love what you said there about flipping it on its head because if, there will always be a need to commute to get from A to B. And, I mean, smart cars are going to be, automated cars will be really interesting to see what that, that does to that space. But I worry, again, it's going to be something that only a few people can actually afford and they're often not the ones who have to travel the furthest. And But can we turn commuting on its head and actually make it an enjoyable experience. And even from, you know, I think I I read recently that mental health is now superseding uh, sort of lifestyle obesity issues as the major cause of health concerns. And just the blood pressure of most people commuting on a train or being stuck in those sort of situations, is there ways we can actually rethink those journeys and make them smarter, make them more enjoyable, make them part of your day that you actually even look forward to and and what kind of benefits would we see overall from that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, one of the key areas that we're not talking about enough in my report from my Winston Churchill Fellowship. So it's great to be talking about it. And I really think that from that perspective, if you do put the lens back on the people that are actually doing the things and why we have to do these things, 
um, you know, you start having different, I guess, ideas or solutions. Uh, and I don't think it's a solution that will, you know, happen overnight or will be the same for everyone because it's, it's, it's complex. It's not the way it's going to work. And there will be many answers to it. And I think what that really points to is the need for a more open, more tolerant to risk, more tolerant to trying new ideas kind of governments where, you know, what if you tried some train carriages? And I know this is a ridiculous idea I've just come up with, but like, you know, that had a mini gym or something where you do exercise for that hour and a half trip or a meetup component that people who are studying the same kinds of thing could sit in an area and use that time to learn together. I, I mean, I have no idea, but there's, I'm sure people far smarter and better at this than me could come up with this kind of ideas, but it feels like there's a real barrier to being able to turn those ideas into things you could test and try in the market, obviously in a safe way and, you know, that kind of thing. But I'm not sure that we have that sort of environment to test those ideas really. But again, maybe, and I really hope that I'm wrong about that. Yeah, I think there are, you know, there's lots happening in the space, but yes, I think there is some reluctance sometimes to test new ideas or just the fact the mechanism isn't set up to be able to do it is one of the things that um, I kind of looked at. And I don't think it's that ridiculous an idea. It's something I've been thinking about, like a yoga, yoga carriage, yoga train carriage, because we talk about autonomous vehicles and we talk about them being this new thing that um, can be like a purpose built. So, you know, you can hire a shared vehicle, you can hire a uh, movie cinema, you can hire a, a gym or, you know, a yoga class, whatever, and you can then commute on your way. Or, you know, for work purposes, you can hire an office, which essentially means potentially that we don't need buildings anymore in the very near future because we could always be cruising around in these bubbles. But is that actually what we want as well? And so there's kind of a balance there. So I do think purpose-built infrastructure and purpose-built you know, modes are, are definitely something that we could look at. Yeah. And just even, you know, I mean, I don't know if you ever saw, I, I'm a big sort of behavioural change nudge theory sort of person. And I loved, I think it was with the Moscow Winter Olympics, they had uh, almost like a Kinect um, camera in front of the ticket machines on the subway. And uh, if you did sort of 10 squats or 20 squats or something, you got your your train ticket for free and so I thought that was a really lovely campaign but again trying to see all right we know people are going to take the train is there ways we can encourage behavior where we you you know get off or on a stop earlier so that you you bring in some sort of exercise into your life I, I don't know Mm-mm. no there's definitely lots of things that you know are a bit out of the box or you know that could be trial and tested and you know if they don't work that's fine. You learn from it and then you move on. And, and and things are quite simple and cheap and easy as well. Yeah, and that is a huge cultural mindset shift for a lot of people, that celebration of failure because we need to learn how to fail better in all sorts of aspects of life and, and that you are not going to be innovative if you don't fall smack on your face and get things horribly wrong and, in fact, dust yourself off and say, awesome, I learned something, great, I can apply that, rather than, oh, my God, I'm the worst person or this is the worst thing, I'm never going to get funding to do a project again, whatever it is, that's a really big thing to, to help get us to this better future as well, embracing failure. Mm, and I think persistence is really key there. And I guess 
persistence, but also like deliberate consistency. And also like, I think the value thing, particularly from a government perspective, you know, it's very, we're adverse to that. And obviously you have to take calculated risks, right? It's not like you're going to build a bridge out of straws and then go, oh shit, it failed. Oh, we killed some people. Oh, well, we'll learn. But but it's actually about those calculated risks and having people involved that you have that trust, genuine trust, trust that, you know, your livelihood isn't on the line if this doesn't work because we know it might not work. So I think better conversations about what we're trying to achieve and well, not even what we're trying to achieve, what we're trying to learn, right? Trying to learn if this works or not, like that's an achievement, not that we have to make this work. Um, So I think if you start shifting that language to learning and like seeing if something is possible, then you can have better conversations around it. Yeah. What are the improvements we're trying to achieve? Yeah. You know, yeah. What are the improvements we're trying to achieve and what are we learning? That type of thing I think is right. And again, technology can provide some wonderful things there with, with virtual reality and 3d printing and mock-ups of, of things that allow us to, fail in a safer way, particularly when you're talking about healthcare or build stuff, infrastructure bridges, that type of thing. I know there's a lot being used in the infrastructure space there. So exciting times that we're in definitely. Um, we just need the culture and the support to allow us to do a little bit more of that, I think. Mm-hmm. So tell us about some of the projects and things that you're currently working on. Right. Well, I'm, I'm currently, I think I mentioned to you before, sitting in a car in Perth. I've just run some really great workshops for a bunch of health and hospital organisations around co-design and how we can use data to understand where the problems we can try and solve them in new ways and co-design solutions with patients and providers. So that's really good fun. Also working with a couple of uh, non-Australian governments around some big sort of national digital health projects. And with that, what's really exciting to me is both of those governments are looking at ways that they can do those initiatives in a way that uses the patient data, obviously with their permission, to support policy and planning out activities outside of health, so things like smart cities, as well as how data from city councils, smart city initiatives, could actually support policy and planning decisions in healthcare. So I think we're going to see more of that whole of government approach to data sharing and insights to drive better, more efficient use of public investment, which is very exciting. Mm, No, it sounds really exciting. And it really kind of leads into this next question, which is how do you think we can better integrate, you know, across the different disciplines, governments and industries? I think it's going to be hard. You know, we, we are in a really tremendously challenging political situation, but we need to be bolder. We need to take risks and government needs to see itself as an enabler. And we need to be able to allow government to make some hard decisions. And also, I think every single person, doesn't matter whether you're on the left or right or anywhere in between, needs to take a little bit of a look in the mirror at the role that they play in that. You know, we we talk about government being so risk-averse and not wanting to do things, yet the media hype cycle of the clickbait, you know, one teeny tiny little error, the government gets ripped a new one, pardon my language, but we need to try and create the space for government to make some hard decisions and stick to them. It's insane to me that a lot of publicly funded services in healthcare don't actually have to share their data back with government, except for some pretty sort of low-level reports two years later. So I really think we need to be smarter about how we use data and mandate that public investment, regardless of what vertical it is, education, health, justice, environment, whatever it is, 
needs to share that data in a way that enables cross-sector analysis and development of joint initiatives that are really going to drive us forward to a more equitable, sustainable and efficient economy. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think there's lots to be said in the space of how we open up, not even open up the data, but actually just share it with the people that it will make a real difference to, which, you know, from a government perspective, it's if they're paying for a service or an initiative, then I guess on the other hand, you have to have the people within there to make those decisions to actually make good decisions about that as well and then what you're actually going to do with that data. So you need that planning and that kind of planned in at the start because you can't add it on kind of later, be like, oh, actually, we also need this, this and this. So really being involved and having people that understand the technology and the data Uh, which are different things and different people as well, understanding that so then we can actually bake these things in at the start and continue to iterate as well because you might not get it right at the start, particularly with new stuff and that type of thing, but actually continuing to monitor and measure these things as we're going and so then you can actually work out whether it is and isn't working, you know. And I think initiatives like, again, that take taking that sort of service design approach, which I know some governments and and state governments in particular are doing, that we need to look at life flow analysis of somebody. So even something as simple as deciding to have a child, you know, and and the the process of getting pregnant, having a baby, all that, all the different touch points that you interact with throughout that entire journey, a multitude of government divisions, right, from and yet we still sort of have this siloed approach that, oh, that's an education initiative, that's a health initiative, that's a blah, blah, blah initiative. If we can use that citizen-centric approach or, or life flow approach to find ways to ensure we're sharing the, the data and keeping that person's need at the forefront of what we're doing. Mm, absolutely. So, you, yeah, you're taking it from the lens of the life flow, yeah, exactly what you said, I suppose, rather than a, oh, well, I need this and this and this service, but actually flipping it and looking from a, if I'm a person doing this type of activity or whatever, what are the touch points I'm going to have and actually streamlining those so then it's really easy and for, the, you know, the customer at the end of the day. And uh, this is probably going to backfire on me talking about this, but the, <laughs> I don't know if you've, have you seen Mindhunter, the show about the FBI sort of analytics guys? Well, they were you know, the first guys in the FBI to talk about sort of psychopaths and serial killers and that type of thing. And you're probably thinking, where on earth am I going with this related to data sharing? But it highlighted that the focus from each of these communities was around the victim, as it rightly should be. But they weren't thinking about the serial killer and how they were moving about. Therefore, they had to go and talk to people in different communities and go and link up and try and rethink how they were solving these crimes. Now, that's a very obtuse, weird way to look at it, but we are sort of just focused on the particular initiative and that this is just an education thing rather than the person within it and that, oh, if they're trying to think about where to put their school, they're also then potentially thinking of where they're going to live and it's housing and it's a multiple number of things. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I think from a smart city, smart community perspective, it's not really smart anything unless it has a, like a multiplier effect, right? One thing that only does one thing is not 
smart in this space because we need to be more resourceful. We need to, you know, streamline these processes and you can't do that if you're only thinking in a silo. Yeah, agreed. Agreed completely. So what are the emerging trends that people aren't talking about enough? Interesting because there's there's a lot of stuff going out there that feels like it's being a bit overhyped. But on the flip side of that, and I I need a better name for this, so if you've got one, please do let me know. Um, Internet Interface Agnostic Content Strategy and Governance. So that's a terrible name, very technical. Uh, but what we've got this emergence of voice, this this you know touch interfaces, gesture interfaces. What? But we're still building systems for primarily a text and potentially image and some video content to be created and inputted and stored and pushed out. And what we need to have systems built for is interface agnostic. So if I ask for something with my voice, it's able to deliver it as a video, it's able to deliver it. It shouldn't matter what type of interface I'm using to push or pull data in and out of a system. And I don't think enough people have thought about how to transition applications or services to do that yet. And I think that's going to be a big win for accessibility, for inclusion, and ensuring those services are open to everyone. So that I think more people need to be talking about. And, you know, I think it's great to hear the announcement of the research into what technology is doing to young kids. But as you mentioned before about these autonomous vehicles and the bubbles we're going to live in, I think we need to look at what this always on, always connected, always attached to your phone, getting my validation through social media type of society is is doing to everyone, not just kids. And how can we start to put in some thinking about new initiatives we do for a smart city or a community that, again, helps to mitigate some of those challenges, particularly as we think about mental health. Yeah, absolutely. And I've had some great discussions this month on topics like that as well. And what I like to call digital black spots or intentional black spots in our smart communities. And also the fact that when we're talking about smart communities, it doesn't have to be technology. It's kind of starting with what the problem is you're trying to solve. And it might be a very human problem, but I do think it still needs to be, because at the moment, the focus, the funding, whatever is coming is turned on in the smart city, smart community space, but realising that doesn't mean you just have to add technology and you've got smart because it's not like that. So actually those human things that we really need and I think, yeah, the impacts on health and well-being and what we're actually doing to, like we were talking about earlier, kind of negate some of those things that we've done in the past. Yeah, and it's, it's thinking about technology as, as an enabler really. I mean, Many, many moons ago, I worked for MTV in the UK and it was just the beginning of text and smart TV stuff. And we had a show called Text, Drugs and Rock and Roll, which was on MTV2, sort of an indie channel. And we had a text overlay on the TV that people would uh, sort of chat via text message across, across the UK and Ireland and actually went into Europe. And everyone sort of thought that it was just these sort of socially isolated kids who were, you know, liked indie music and maybe a bit emo. But actually what we saw was that that created a community that then flowed on to real life. And these kids would meet up at festivals and be like, oh, cool, who else is going to Glastonbury? And it became an enabler of them to be connected to people who are like me, who like music like me, who feel the same things as me. And that was a really wonderful moment for me to go, aha, this is what the technology is for. It's to help people do the things that they want to do. 
Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a really cute example. I really like that back in the day and connecting. Back in the day, we, yeah, we had a, a, instead of a DJ, it was called a TJ, a text jockey, and it was a cow. It was, um, <laughs> it was good. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So it's been so great to chat with you, Rachel. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. No problem. Thank you. It's a real honour to be part of it and, and have a conversation with you. I love what you're doing. So thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's really fun. I really enjoy chatting to people from all different backgrounds in. So thanks for being a part of it. No problem. I just have one last question. Mm-hmm. How can people connect with you? People can connect with me through Codasan, uh, which is codasan.com.au through the website there, or pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. I'm Rachel Dasan, Dasan meaning of health. So thank you, parents, for giving me that one. Um, yeah, or on Twitter, I'm uh, Dasan. Excellent. We'll put all the links in the show notes so people can click away and find you. Thanks again for coming on to the podcast. Awesome. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community or find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter at smartcompod. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears, so thank you in advance. As always, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for. 